The May municipal election in San Antonio is over. We now know who won, who lost, and who must continue campaigning until the June 10th runoff. Welcome to a special edition of Beyond the Bite, where we will dive right into the election and talk about what happened, what didn't happen, and what the new city council will focus on for the remainder of 2023. Joining me for insight and analysis on the San Antonio municipal elections are Frank Burney, partner with the Martin Drought Law Firm. Tara Snowden, Vice President of Public and Government Affairs at the Zachary Corporation, and Jeff Webster, Vice President of Business Development at Jacobs Engineering Group. First of all, welcome to all three of you. I guess before we dive into the specific elections, uh, let's just get some overall uh, observations about the elections. And Frank, I'll start with you. Good. Well, thank you for having us here. We look forward to it. Congratulations on the new UT graduate oh, and your family. You. I understand there's a legacy there. Our son, Diego. That's great news. Great news. You know, obviously the big news was the uh, the margin of victory of the Prop A. Uh, op, um, so on that race, it just everybody expected to lose, but I'm not sure anybody predicted it would be in the 70s. I don't um, think they did. <laughs> and, then you, uh, and then you look at some of the other races. Obviously, uh, three of the contested races were with White, Jalen, and Courage all had multiple candidates in those races, and all of them won without a runoff, which was surprising to me. Um, and, and then, of course, the third thing is everybody decided to take a look at Sook uh, as, as her campaign. Uh, in District 1. In District 1. She's and, in the uh, runoff with Mario Bravo. 34-26. Nobody expected that. Uh, Mario. Yeah, I, that was a big surprise for me. And I think, um, uh, you know, there, there were some issues with Prop A, during that race where um, she seemed to favor it and then waffle at some of the, I know the Asian Alliance was one meeting where uh, there was some confusion about that, but um, anything else, Frank? No, I just, in that race, Mario outspent her almost two one. And uh, you know, the only business leader that I know of that was supporting her was Nelson Wolf. And uh, I fully expect Nelson to write a letter to the business community this week and and making the argument that she's a viable candidate and going to give Mario a real run for his money in the runoff. You know, there was a lot happening there. Um, I think one of the ones that Frank mentioned um, was John Courage. Now, I live in District 9. The one thing I can tell you is I know that they, John and his wife were worried about this 19% of, of voters who were coming out who had not voted in the last six municipal elections that were showing up and were reporting them to, to be driven to the polls by Proposition A. And so um, the one thing I can tell you, I think that I've observed, and I guess, Terry, your office is in uh, District 9. The, the one thing that we've noticed about John is he seems to have moderated his position since he first got elected. I would agree with that. Very much so. Mm -hmm. And from people that I talk to that live in District 9, um, he has mastered constituent service. And that's the type of thing that can either get you reelected or um, cause you to lose if you're not paying attention to uh, getting potholes fixed and uh, streetlights repaired. Um, so... Um, Anything else, Tara? Any other? You know, just like Frank, I was surprised to see the, the numbers in District 1, how those turned out. And then, frankly, I thought that uh, Phyllis Villagran, I thought her numbers would be a bit stronger. Um, and those surprised me a bit when I saw the, the final numbers. And we'll, we'll come back to, to her race because um, that, that is something that, that we need to talk about. Jeff, just overall. 
I think Frank hit on it perfectly. But what I would add is early polling on Prop A, uh, it was upside down. I mean, we were real concerned that this was going to pass. And so I, there's so many people to applaud for getting engaged in that. But it also drove out voters. The gap flipping it to a victory of stopping it. And that gap, I think, just shocked everybody. And I think that's been exciting. I think what happened in District 10 shocked people. And I know we're going to get to that with Mark pulling that out without a runoff. That's going to be interesting. And then um, Via Grande, that race being so close was just a shock to me. It, it hints at vulnerability, but we'll get to that, I guess. So um, to your point, on Prop A, it was upside down on the uninformed ballot. So Correct. when you just ask people without them knowing anything about it or reading anything about it, you give them a little description of Prop A, um, it showed it winning. And then when you get to the informed ballot, it showed that there was a path to victory once people understood what was at stake. Well, the uninformed voter was upside down in, in wanting to support it. And that was concerning. Uh, there was a real... Uh, the challenge we saw, let me back up on this, was people believed city council was all in favor of this. And we worked with the mayor and others to get them to come out and explain they did oppose it. And I think that started some momentum along with the different groups. But it, it, it was nerve wracking. And I, nobody was sure what was going to happen on Election Day. So uh, what were the turning points, do you believe, uh, in Prop A, that the mayor going public would be one? I think $2 million spent by the, by the police union to uh, put the message out there, turn this turn that race. And just full disclosure, I'm, I was the co-chair of the San Antonio Safe Pack, and we spent close to half a million. Um, I think it did allow us to get our message out there. Um, I think that the mayor uh, going public uh, was a factor. And I also think that um, having the city attorney come out as soon as they file the petition to say 90% of this is unenforceable because it violates state law. You know, what's interesting about that vote, though, is that in Austin, they had two referendums on police control. They did. And the, the anti-police effort passed by 85%. It was the Austin's Prop A. Prop A, Prop a passed by 85%, and the, the police and Prop back, B Prop B went the, down by 80%. It did. <laughs> which was get, shows me that, um, you know, if the voters only had one issue to vote on, I mean, well, first of all, it shows me Austin's more liberal than San Antonio, yes. clearly. Yeah. <laughs> but secondly, if it hadn't been so confused, you might have had a different response. Well, I, I would follow that up with the results of those kind of anti-police voting has resulted in the Department of Public Safety having to now patrol in Austin and subsidize and support APD because it's gotten so out of hand and they've lost so many officers. Good intentions develop unintended consequences and those kind of ordinances developed unintended consequences that the citizens didn't see. And now they've been grateful for DPS to come in, step in and support the Austin Police Department. So glad we didn't get there in San Antonio, but that could have been interesting. So, and, and, their, and their problem in Austin is going to get worse because they have no police contract up there now. Correct. And though as a result of this vote, 85% of the citizens saying they want to put greater restrictions on police, you're going to see a lot of rank file police retire early. And, and, and their problem is only going to be trend exactly seen up there, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that started a while back. Yeah. And then that's why Mayor Kirk Watson had to go on bended knee to the governor and say, I need to borrow... Uh, DPS troopers to help us keep Austin safe because I don't have enough police officers. And um, that that is a concern in police departments. Police departments across the country are suffering from two things. 
Number one, um, demographics. So many officers are boomers that are retiring, and that's a big bubble of uh, police departments across the country. And secondly, it's a profession that's not so favorably viewed by current generations as it was by previous generations. So uh, people are looking elsewhere. I guess it's more profitable to be a social media influencer than it is to be a police officer. (laughs) Okay, so still staying on Prop A just briefly, and then I want to move on. Uh, Ananda Thomas, the executive director for Act for SA, came out and said um, that the money spent on the campaign squashed the will of the people. Frank, you talked about money a, a little while ago, but does that statement hold water considering the margin? I mean, it seemed like the will of the people spoke. Well, uh, I think it's a little disingenuous, first of all. Um, the, how many hundreds of thousands of dollars was that campaign did they spend to, to get the voter signatures to put on the ballot to begin with? And, and the, the source of that, those donations hasn't been revealed yet, hasn't been discovered. But secondly, you can't, when, when you win by 75% of the vote, you can't just blame it on the squashing the will of the people. I mean, clearly the, the citizens evaluated the issue, they made their choice, and they sided with, you know, giving more support to police. So here's something I want to point out that I thought was very interesting. 140,000 people voted on, Prop, on Proposition A, about 100,000 voted against it, and 40,000 voted for it. So 40,000 votes in support of Proposition A. When Act for SA turned in their petition, they turned it in with 37,000 signatures. I don't recall the exact number of how many were actually certified, but I think it was north of 35,000. So that's three to 5,000 votes more on election day than what they started with when they submitted the petition. So it seemed like they didn't even have their natural con, uh, constituencies uh, that were supportive of this. And I think what I'm looking forward to seeing is the the breakdown by council district to see what how which parts of town voted for or against this. Um, but uh, I just thought it was interesting that they didn't seem to get any growth since the time they submitted their petition. Well, and I think a lot of that has to do with miscommunication about the actual proposition, right? I mean, I I think that once those um, issues became known, I think people started to change their positions on, on Prop A. Jeff, were you going to say? Well, yeah, I was going to say, we use the word squash, that they squash the voters. And I think the reverse has happened. When the voters became informed, as Tara was just saying, the, the voters were better informed and understood what this thing was all about and very clearly made a statement. I would not want to be on the other side trying to ramp this back up in two years or four years. Um, money was spent on both sides, but an informed voter made a really solid decision. And I think sends a clear message that will have benefit beyond just our public safety. This is going to benefit into economic development, what the folks at Greater SATX are trying to do, because it sends a message that we do support us, so please, we do support public safety and these kind of things. There will be some net benefits in this that other groups will benefit from by this kind of message. And Eddie, I think we also benefited from other municipalities throughout the country who have passed similar legislation or ordinances related to this sort of kind of blatant, obvious issues that don't necessarily need to go with each other, right? So um, I think in those municipalities where it hasn't 
bode well for, for those cities, you know, that were crime increases and you, you have businesses that are closing down um, because of ordinances such as this. Um, that was, that was helpful to our community, I think, in, in seeing how it impacted other municipalities. The, um, it seemed like for a while there, it was like death by a thousand cuts because every week Whole Foods, one of the grocery stores in San Francisco, I think it was Whole Foods, Walmart, Nordstrom, CVS, a bunch of them, Walgreens, Walgreens. were were pulling out due to inflation. We just talked about Austin. What was happening in Austin? We all are very close to that. You see it, what's happening there. And that begins to resonate at home. I think a lot of people had a taste of that. It seemed like there were too many items in the proposition. And and I'm a little surprised Ananda Thomas um, stated that she didn't regret lumping all those things in together, marijuana, abortion, chokeholds, theft of property, theft of services, and uh, property damage through graffiti. But I think that was confusing uh, to the voters. Uh, Also, the city attorney announcing that it was unenforceable except for the justice director uh, position. Congressman Tony Gonzalez spent money on his own and campaigned on his own, having rallies against Proposition A. Bear County Commissioner Grant Moody spent some money doing some radio ads uh, and speaking out um, against it. So I think beyond the San Antonio Police Officers Association and the San Antonio Safe Pack, there were other headwinds that um, that they were facing. Yeah, Eddie, I got to tell you, we were in D.C. a few weeks ago with uh, the Chamber's traditional essay to D.C. trip, and we were with Tony. And the first words out of his mouth is, you tell me what we can do to help. I mean, he, I got to give Congressman a real kudos because he didn't just talk it. He was out there working it, and he made it very clear weeks ago that he was going to be a big part of this effort. So really owe a big thanks to him for that. He's, okay. he's a shining star in so many ways. I mean, his leadership on the border issues. Yeah. It comes down when he came down here last week, I mean— He's right on target. If my and own Republican Party doesn't destroy him first. <laughs> Moving on, there were two open seats on the city council, District 10, because incumbent Clayton Perry chose not to run again, and then District 7 because of the resignation of Ana Sandoval and the decision by the interim council member, Rosie Castro, choosing not to run again, or not to run for the full term. So I want to start with District 10. Jeff, uh, you're a former council member from District 10. Um Mark had numerous opponents. How did he, with all those challengers, how was he able to win that without a runoff? Well, let me tell you, that's, that's a, I'll call him a young man because he's younger than me, but that gentleman was dedicated. And I told him through the whole campaign, I kept watching from social media and we had pretty much daily and weekly calls. He was putting in the time. He was putting in the shoe leather. He did it the old fashioned way. He did raise money, but he was out knocking doors, working the neighborhoods, I mean, circling all the wagons. He had seven former District 10 council members on board with him. Including you. Including myself. Um, He had uh, the neighborhoods lined up, the Northside Neighborhood Alliance. He had his D10 group lined up. He had checked the boxes, but he just didn't assume. We've seen candidates run for office. You think, oh, he's going to win this or she's going to win this. He did it, and he went out and put the shoe leather in, shaking hands, kissing babies, Little League games, churches. He was everywhere. Mark earned this, and I, was, I told him election night I was very proud of him for the effort. He just didn't take it for granted with all the endorsements and money and everything that, oh, I've got this as a shoe in. There were other people out there working, and 
Boy, Mark just put the effort in, and I, I just really salute him on that. So uh, talk about um, the makeup of the district, because it's a district that Beto O'Rourke won, but yet they elected a, a conservative like Clayton Perry to the council and now a conservative like Mark White. Well, this district has changed over the years from when Lyle Larson and myself in those following years as terms as council member had that district extremely conservative. We've had a lot of young families move back into the area and it has kind of moved towards the center a lot. But what Mark did and what that district is just, I just love about District 10 is those neighborhoods are engaged. It's a grassroots community. And Mark has been a part of that. He's worked in it. He's worked with John Clamp. He's worked with Mike Gallagher. Uh, he's worked with Carlton Souls. I mean, he's been in there with those guys the last several years with the neighborhoods. So if there's a definition of a grassroots campaign, irregardless of party, because it's a nonpartisan race, Mark went in and earned this, paid some dues, understood the district, was involved in zoning, kind of checked all the boxes. I mean, if I was, if you came to me and said, hey, Jeff, I want to run for mayor, and here, what would you suggest? I would tell you to do exactly what Mark did. You got to check the boxes. You got to get in the, you got to get down in the dirt. You got to get in the grassroots. You got to get with those neighborhoods. You got to get people engaged. And Mark did it. I mean, I give him absolute credit because it would have been easy to sit back uh, and just assume you're going to win this thing. We saw it a few years ago in a District 9 race where I think a candidate thought he had that wrapped up. And uh, John Courage came in and kept working all the way through the finish line and upset somebody a lot of people thought was going to win that race. He didn't do that. Mark, Mark kept working all the way through the very end. So that's what you have to do to win grassroots city council races. Tara, Frank, have, have you all ever seen a candidate for council earn the endorsement of seven previous council representatives? I, I thought that was oh, never. A very impressive and it sent a statement. Well, the, the, keep in mind that part of that was to discourage the current council member from running. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so there were there were different circumstances. It is amazing though that all seven came together. But I think that they came together originally to send a message to the incumbent that he, he shouldn't be running. And what about uh, Pauline Rubio was thinking about running? She's someone who's center left, and she chose not to run and instead endorsed Mark. How much? of a factor was that. I, I thought that was a big factor for Mark. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that she swayed a lot of votes by with that endorsement, but obviously that shows that uh, White is probably a little more moderate than maybe some people thought he might be. Tara, um, it seemed like Mark, his background as a mediator um, can be something that will be beneficial to the city council. Uh, as a mediator, you spend more time listening than talking. So that'll serve him well, won't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I think he he helped himself to recall when he was running for other offices in, in years past. I think he he had some really great lessons learned um, from those previous experiences, and uh, I think I think he did a very nice job of of pulling it out. So let's move on to District 7. Um, there were five candidates that squared off. The two top vote-getters were Marina Alderete-Gavito and Dan Rossiter. And, and just for, since this is an audio podcast, um, Alderete is different from Alderete. Uh, Marina <laughs> has an extra E in her last name, and uh, so we are not related. So Marina came out on top with 43% of the vote to Dan Rossiter's 21% of the vote, which 
uh, which it means they're both headed to a June 10th runoff. Um, any surprises on, on those two making it in? No, I think that it was always going to be between those two and always going to be a runoff. Um, I was surprised at the lack of money that Rothster put in this campaign. Let's talk about that. $4,000. Compared to her at $80,000. You know, he comes from an HOA background. He was head of the largest HOA in that district. Um, Don't write him off. Uh, I I think Marina will win. But I I think if, if, if people, he had enough money in a runoff and got his voters out, it could be a lot closer than people think. I think you're right. I think, um, Remember when Ron Nirenberg was running for mayor, right? Um, he he came in second for that race, and what was this? 2017. Election night, yeah, 2017. Yes, and uh, in the runoff, he he ended up pulling it out and and beating Ivy Taylor 55 to 45 percent, right? So, I, to your point, don't discount him yet, just yet. I think uh, if he's really active and and gets his name and record out there, I think he'll. He'll probably do a bit stronger, but I agree, Frank, that um, Marina will probably, I think she'll, she'll pull out that win. Jeff? Well, I want to see Marina not make the mistake that I mentioned a couple of years ago with the candidate did and think you've got this lead and somewhat coast to this June 10th runoff. It's all engaged, all hands on deck. She's got to push through the finish line or she's going to wake up with a surprise uh, the night of June 10th or June 11th. Well, so, so push it. That's what she's got to do. You're right. There's no Prop A that's on the June 10th runoff ballot, and you start with a clean slate. Yeah, but don't be surprised at, 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 her, at her candidacy. I mean— Oh, she's strong. Uh, for, she the, for the first time, you have the issue about, uh, you know, a woman of color uh, and the whole history of Mario and the situation with former uh, Councilwoman Anna with male-female election. And I think there's going to be a lot of women that vote— and remember that in vote. Yeah, she's um, she's strong. And I tell you what, if yeah, if you follow her on social media or you were out and about town anywhere, um, she was everywhere. Um, and even at functions where um, a few functions, even outside, she was at your state of the av- Jeff, your state of the aviation lunch, and she came in, uh, you know, made the round, stayed for the presentation, and then she left to go back to go block walking. She's shown up at several events like that, not just there. And that's what I'm talking about. You got to push through the end. It's easy to assume. Push through the end. Keep block walking, shaking hands, showing up at events. You got to know people. There's no quit in you. And I'm like everybody else. I don't think she's got quit in her. I think she's going to fight through the end. Tough to overcome, but don't assume anything. Yeah. And I was impressed also with her positions. She came out strong on Prop A um, against it. And, you know, she identified the issues. She explained why she was against it. And I think she did a great job of tackling that issue head on from the very beginning. So the other race in a runoff um, is in District 1, and that's with incumbent council member Mario Bravo. Uh, he faced six challengers and got 26% of the vote. Educational consultant Suk Kaur Top the field with 34% of the vote. Um, and coming in a close third was Jeremy Roberts at 21%. And here's what's interesting about Jeremy is that a lot of people said Prop A is what took people to the polls. He was the most adamant uh, against Prop A, yet he came in third. So clearly voters seem to be looking for something else and not just your position on Prop A. 
Well, I, I, you know, Mario has done a great job of neighborhood outreach. I mean, he works those neighborhoods really well. And even in spite of the incident at City Hall, I think that those neighborhood activists, a lot of them stayed with Mario on, that, on, this, on this race. Now, when it's a heads up against a woman of color, that, you know, a new fresh start, we'll see. And uh, the word relentless comes to mind when I think of Mario, because actually previous to his initial run for council, he was a behind the scenes uh, campaigner and uh, working a lot of different campaigns. So, um, so they face the um, Souk and Mario will be in the June 10th uh, runoff. It was interesting because, Mario lost the Express News endorsement and they endorsed the Express News endorsed Jeremy Roberts, who is now not in the um, runoff. So we'll see what um, where we go from there. All right. So let's go move on to some of the other um, council district races. So we'll start at the bottom since we just covered District one. Let's go to District two. We talked about this at the outset. Um, Ten people running in District two, nine against the incumbent Jalen McKee Rodriguez. And Jalen got 56% of the vote. There are two 501c4 business-backed uh, political organizations that got involved in some of these uh, races. We don't yet know which races and how much they spent. But I think one, one of the uh, pieces of feedback that I was hearing was from the business community was there wasn't even consensus within district two on any of the nine challengers. And so I think a lot of people just decided to leave that race alone. And, but again, Frank, you mentioned at the outset that, you know, uh, he's the first district two council member to win a second term in 10 years. So I think you were talking about Mario and it appears Jalen has strong bonds. Well, he also, uh, he's worked the neighborhoods. He is out in that district all the time and he's brought back tangible benefits to that district that a lot of pre prior councilmen haven't been able to. I mean, his, in terms of the money allocated to projects on that side, he's worked it hard. And I think people recognize that. And he, you may not agree with him on council, but it seems like he has a fairly good relationship with his fellow council members. Yeah. Appears so. Okay. Let's go to Tara. Let's go to District 3, Phyllis Villagran. Um, she had three opponents, but um, she won, I, I believe the number was like 50.9. So let's just push it up to 51. But smaller <laughs> margin, margin than I think a lot of people might have expected, not only because she is vocal on council, but her sister, Rebecca, preceded her on the council. And so the name is well known. Um, but they are two different people. Trust me, I have brothers, I know, and I say this all the time. So, uh, but what happens now when you squeak by like that? I think she's got to show up strong. I, it's difficult when you pull out a win, but it's barely squeaking by, right? I mean, she's well known within the district, so it's interesting to see that number so low. When you say show up strong, I'm assuming you mean she's got to be more vocal on council. She's got to get out in front of some of these issues. Take some strong positions on some of these issues that, you know, they frankly end up being quite difficult to have conversations on the dais these days. Um, but I think she needs to show up and, and be vocal about those issues that she's passionate about. So the champion of the night was uh, 
district for Councilwoman Adriana Rocha Garcia, um, who got 75% of the vote. So she had the highest percentage, but she also just had uh, one opponent, uh, but still strong. She's another one that um, relentless, not just campaigner, but advocate, walking the streets, um, working in her neighborhoods. Well, what's interesting about that, you talk about a 75% vote like that. What that does is chase off future opposition. What 51% does, when you only get 51%, there are groups meeting today probably trying to figure out how to take on Phyllis next time around. You, you, you can't, as an incumbent, come back with 51. That, what's the term? They're starting to circle already probably within the district to figure out they think she's vulnerable. So what Tara said was spot on. Get engaged with those neighborhoods, get engaged on tough issues, and then you get results like 75%. 51% is a scary number. If I'm in, when I was an incumbent, that would scare me to death. She's got to learn from what others have done that got strong results and get back out there in the district. And I think she can come back next year with just like uh, uh, Adriana did and come back with 75%. And then we'll be talking two years from now about, wow, 75%, that's great. So I think it's a good contrast between how council people work when you got a competitive race and you still get 75 versus an incumbent coming in with 51. Well, the other interesting thing about the 75% is that it sets Adriana up for a run for the mayor in two years. And we're well, going to she, 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 she and Manny, she and Manny are, are the, the top vote getters at 75 and 70%. And the other possible one to be is Melissa, but she only squeaked by with 54%. Right. All right, so we're, we're going to hold that, hold that thought. We're going to come back to that. So District 5, Terry Castillo, um, she had two opponents with 63% of the vote. And I think like Jalen, um, you know, both of these two, um, they, they work extremely hard in their district um, to the disappointment of many in the business community who uh, struggle with their positions on some issues. But I think... There's an opportunity, and I think um, I just want to go back to Mark White for a moment because um, I think he's going to take a different approach. Um, again, it's his background as a mediator, and full disclosure, I was his treasurer. But his background as a mediator, um, he does spend a lot of time listening, and he's a very intellectually curious person. I don't see him. Um, you had the combativeness of a Greg Brockhouse. Um, Clayton Perry um, was often a lone no vote, but I think that Mark is going to develop the relationships on the council because he knows that Jalen's vote counts just as much as his own. And maybe there is something they can work on together um, where they can help each other because there may be something that's unique to their specific districts, and there are other bigger projects that help the whole city. The same goes for Terry, too. Exactly. All right, so Frank, um, let's go back to District 6. You talked about um, Melissa. She had two opponents, came in with 54, and we're going to come back to the mayor's race, but um, I don't think there was any surprise there. You know, she's another one that's um, very active in her district, very visible. Um, You see her everywhere. And, um, okay, so now let's go to District 8. Manny Polis beat a single opponent 70% to 30%. Really no surprise there. Just Dis- as an incumbent should do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're, they're running for mayor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, District 9, John Courage. Again, we talked about him at the outset. Um, he had three opponents earning 62%. Um, he's, like I said earlier, I think he's um, softened and changed his uh, positions. And um, he's become very, very extremely focused on constituent service. So with that, since all three of you purebreds were trying to rush out the gate in the week of the Kentucky Derby to get to the mayor's race, let's talk about the mayor's race, (laughs) which I guess uh, officially began the day after the election. So, um, Frank, I'll start with you because you 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 mentioned these council members. Um, You see the, the main contenders at the who people are talking about or people who have actually started sharing candidates who have started sharing their desire to potentially run for mayor or not so potentially that they are, <laughs> they are running for mayor. So um, let's start off with those well, I three. Think, I think all three of them, Melissa, uh, Manny, and Adrian are all viable candidates. They all did well. Uh, they all raised money. Um, that where you were, you, worry about it is you have these tremendous vote totals on the north side. I mean, Courage in D9 had 24,000 people vote. In Manny's district, 14,000. And then you go to Adriano's district where it's 6,000. And so a north side candidate obviously starts with a natural advantage because of the number of voters that turn out uh, in these races, in the mayor's race. And so you, you, you've got to, you know, if you were going to handicap it, you'd probably put Manny in the, in the, as a, as the top horse out there right now. But I still think there's other people that'll come out of the woodwork. Uh, you know, Gordon Hartman type people uh, that may uh, come out and get in this race. They may see it a wide open race, and um, you know they could raise enough money to, to to make a difference. Frank hit it spot on. There's three natural candidates from city council, but as I move around town and talk to folks, I really believe there is a search on for outside of city hall uh, to find that person. I can't tell you that is. I don't know if Eddie's prepared to announce today that he's running, <laughs> but, and I don't think he is. But we joke, but there, I think there's that look around town to try and find somebody to get a fresh set of eyes downtown. I think it's tough to go do. As somebody who sat down there, when you get into that budget and the staff, it's tough just to walk in. Hardberger did a great job of it. I give him all the credit in the world. It's hard as hell to do, but it's hard to find candidates that want to run for the mayor or even city council, i got to be honest, in some regards. It's a tough life. Uh, 50% hate you, 50% love you, but it's tough. And it's hard to walk away from a business and a career to go do that. We'll see what happens. I, I think what Frank said was very honest. I think there'll be a surprise candidate or two jump in that race. So um, let's talk about um, this new council. And obviously it's not complete yet uh, because you have two runoff elections on June the 10th in um, District 1 and District 7. So looking at the balance of the year, um, what will the new council be focused on? Well, let's, uh, let's first take a look. You know, one in seven be the contested races. You know, a year ago, you had clearly a very progressive member of the council in District 7. Uh, and whichever one wins in District 7 runoff, they're probably going to be more middle of the road. Uh, in District 1, I think the same way. And so you're going to have a more uh, you know, conservative-minded council members, which 
kind of shifts the balance. Before, it was always a 6-5 vote between progressive elements and more middle-of-the-road. Now it's going to be more likely to be eight or nine middle-of-the-road types with only a couple of progressives. And so I think you may not have quite the progressive agenda going forward. So in District 7, would you agree that regardless of who wins the runoff, that you get a middle-of-the-road candidate in Marina or uh, Dan Rossiter? I'd agree. Yeah, I think both of those candidates in District 7 are business-friendly minded. Okay. And then in District 1, um, how would you classify? Well, once again, I mean, I we already th- know Mario's record. Yeah, but I think even Mario will come more to the middle. I think he's going to have to reach out if he does succeed in the runoff. He's going to have to come more to the middle to govern. Uh, and as far as I can tell from Souk, that she is more in the middle of the road. She's not way out there on a progressive agenda. I mean, her her bread and butter is education. That's what she she that's her expertise, and that's what she wants to see happen. So I think when you put either one of those four candidates in office of the, in the two races, I think you have a more middle of the road council, which I think is going to result in fewer pure progressive initiatives coming through council next year. Jeff was Mario's position on the two budgets where he voted present instead of voting for or against the budget and his unwillingness to take a position on prop a were, were those factors in his race? Well, I I think that's a leadership question. You know, even if you disagree when you're down there, you can disagree with your council mates. I mean, that's fine. I had a bunch of them I disagreed with and they just, you know, disagree with me, but we showed up and we voted, we took a stand and we moved on. And I think people respect that. Even if they disagree, they respect that you take that stand. And I think not taking a position, stepping away from the dais, or one of those little tricks that are done down at City Hall hurt your credibility as a leader. I mean, we used to hear, I mean, when, when Ed Garza was mayor, people used to get frustrated because he wouldn't take a firm stand, left <laughs> or right, yes or no, and it made people frustrated. Because yes. you can take a position, and we can disagree, that's fine, but doing nothing is not, is not what a leader does. So I think that's got to be a refined skill. He's, he's going he's gonna to have to work on moving forward. But I'm going to come back to something you say, what are going to be the key issues? And I, I think the mayor is going to look for a couple very important things. He needs legacy, right? He wants legacy. Ron has been about legacy. He's put in the hours. I think there's two legacy projects he can see fully funded and kicked off that mean a lot to him, and that's the airport. He's really jumped over what Jesus and those guys are doing out there and put a lot of money into it. Wants to see that committed and done. Obviously, it won't be completed by the time he's done, but he will have that kind of signed off on. And via with uh, the north-south and eventually the east-west routes, they've moved all those things forward to happen sooner rather than later. And I think when Ron leaves in two years, he's going to be able to say, in my last two years, in concrete, funded and started and moving towards success. And I think it's going to be great for our community, both of them. But I think those are the two things, if I was Ron— I'm trying to, as far as legacy subjects, you can get into SAWS and CPS, and those will be fights along the way about what we do. But leaving your name behind on the airport and with VIA will be two things I expect Ron to be very aggressive on. Well, I, I don't know what issues um, he'll come out strong on, but I suspect that he will want to set himself up for some future public office as well. I agree. You know, let's not forget about his signature program, though, right now is ready to work. $200 million, he's invested in that, and, and it's going to need a lot of work. I mean, uh, you know, it, it's it's very, very difficult to train, 
provide all the resources needed to train people for jobs when they need childcare and they need money to make their pay their electric bills and things of that nature. And uh, he's spending a lot of money on that over the next five years. And that is going to have a very sharp mark on his legacy. You know, that's an interesting point because I'm not sure that people truly understand or appreciate the, how the lack of childcare is such an inhibitor to people being able to move up the socioeconomic ladder to get the skills and the training they need to take time off, go get the training and then go, you know, get a higher, better paying job with, you know, better benefits. Um, housing costs are an issue. Healthcare is an issue, but I think childcare is probably one of the biggest. No question about it. You can't leave your house with three babies there, especially when the target of ready to work is women. And that's, they've, they've said that. And when you have three babies at home, it's, it's our, you know, children at home, you can't afford, you can't go get training if you don't have childcare. And, and I know that this is something that's um, very special to the mayor, um, but I know there's still work that has to be done because it, it, it has, it's not where he wants it to be. And I think not where the workforce wants it to be, but. Yeah, it got off to a rocky start. I think the numbers could be a little bit stronger, um, but if they continue to align with the business folks that really need to fill those positions, I think they'll do, they'll do a better job. And it's not just filling the positions that currently exist. It's also taking a look at what's coming what's ahead. Coming, yeah. It's a one of the old adages is for high school kids that 40% of the jobs that will be available when they graduate high school don't even exist today. And we've seen how quickly our economy can transform from place to place. And Frank, what the council, uh, how effective they are and the issues they work on will be highly dependent upon who gets appointed to what committee. No question about that. Most of the work occurs in the committee level now. And uh, nothing gets to council without going through a committee first. And uh, the mayor makes those appointments. Um, but like I said, I don't, you know, in the district one in seven races, Every one of those people are going to be able to work with the mayor. I mean, no matter who they are, who wins, every one of them is going to. So the mayor's coming in with a strong council, whereas two years ago there were, you know, there was a, a progressive element that may, did not see eye to eye with the mayor at that time on a lot of issues. They wanted to move faster on getting rid of coal and um, other progressive issues. So, Tara, you spend a lot of time in Austin. Um, there are some lingering issues in the legislature that might also have an impact on the city council and on the city uh, as itself. Um, what do you see that's still out there? You know, one of the um, main issues that the city was keenly focused on about a month ago was uh, a bill from Chairman Schwartner, and he was targeting basically the city of Austin. And he his bill would have prevented transfers from uh basically payments from the utility to the city um, in order to fill budget deficits. And I know that San Antonio was keyed up on that issue. Um, it looks as though um, he was really just targeting the city of Austin. It doesn't appear as though that bill is moving. It's been left pending. Um, but I'm, I'd give props to Senator Menendez because he did a great job of uh, highlighting the differences between San Antonio and um, the city of Austin. Well, San Antonio is a municipal, they're both municipally owned utilities, but the difference is CPS is its own entity and has its own uh, board, Correct. board of directors. S Austin energy 
is basically a department of the city that reports up to the city manager. Correct. So correct. Uh, different uh, issues. Also, what about the Regulatory Consistency Act, which uh, used to be called the statewide preemption bill? This was sort of a result of like the paid sick leave to try to prevent municipalities from interfering in the employer-employee relationship. I, li- I like the new name better. Death, the, death, <laughs> the, death, the Death Star. The Death Star. That's what everybody's calling it. <laughs> well, it looks like it's on its way to passage. Um, you know, it, it's moving. The House bill is over in the Senate now. They left the Senate bill pending there. So they'll, what I think they'll end up doing is just swapping out those two bills. And it's it's looking like it's going to pass. So any, anything else on... Uh, state legislative issues that may. The only other one is that I can think of at the moment is that taxpayer funded lobbyist bill. Um, It's not really moving at this point. You know, it was on the Republicans priority list for several sessions and it looks like uh, it's going to die a slow death. (laughs) So um, let's go back, I guess, to where we started and that's proposition a Um, Frank uh, Ananda Thomas said that she's, she's going to be back. Um, she still wants to work on police reforms. Um, it's my understanding that there's two paths that you can take to get police reform. One is the legislative path, which I don't see as a viability. And the second is through collective bargaining. And I don't think the police contract is up until 2026. 2026. Okay. So unless she comes back with another proposition, uh, what other options does she have for police reform? Very limited, very limited. And and hopefully the mayor has learned his lesson. Uh, I think if he would have initiated a charter reform committee early on and gotten another issue uh, on for a proposition before the voters, it could have changed it. I'm hoping that next week he'll announce a charter review committee that will address Eric, the city manager's salary and how long he can stay in office. And they may decide to tackle things like, you know, whether they have four two-year terms, they may go with two four-year terms, or they may increase the pay for the mayor and the city council. But I would hope that the mayor on Monday of next week announces the formation of this, and so they can get it ready to go and take it to voters either in the spring or in November of next year. And I will tell you, I'll just speak to the city manager's job. There's a lot of jobs you may want in the world. (laughs) God love Eric Walsh. Because that job is 365, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He earns every penny he gets. And if we're going to keep and retain and get future talent, you're not going to do it by the current methodology we have. Or we're going to have churn every few years. So I hope the mayor does initiate a charter commission. I hope they do take on these complicated issues. It's in the best interest of our city. Things like this actually help in economic development. Stability helps a city grow. Change can present a lot of problems because the business community will not have faith in what direction the city's headed. So making sure we got these things settled down and ironed down helps bond ratings, helps economic development growth, helps those of us in the business community feel very secure about what we're dealing with here in this city. So it's going to be, Ron's going to have an interesting two years here if we can get this turned around on some things. All right. Lightning round, final thoughts or comments? Anyone? Bueller. I, I first of all, I just want to say, hey, thanks for ho- hosting us today and giving us a chance to speak up and share some thoughts. This was an interesting election. I think in two years, I hope you invite us back and we can look back on what was said today and see if we were brilliant or if we were silly or <laughs> our friends. But uh, 
you know, Frank is so close to these issues at City Hall. It's, it's nice to hear his insights, and I look forward to seeing how much truth moves forward out of what we've predicted. Well, thank thank all of you. Tara, were you going to say something? I was just going to say I'm surprised you're not running for another office, Jeff. <laughs> you, got, you got two more terms. <laughs> well, I'm prepared to be the campaign manager for the Alteretti family as they move forward in their race <laughs> uh, for mayor. The only thing I'm going to be running for is the border. Yeah, there's um, one one issue uh, that we probably ought to bring up, which is the fire contract. It is. It comes up in December of next year. And so it'll be interesting to see, you know, obviously the history of Cheryl Scully and, and public safety. We'll, we'll put that aside. But um, the firefighters are going to be loaded for bear this time. Uh, and they're, they, they, didn't, they didn't feel like they got a fair deal last time. And the mayor's going to have to deal with that issue. And it'll be interesting to see whether this strong push by police and really turning around on Prop A with their money and their manpower with that has any effect over how people in City Hall address the firefighters contract in the future. You know what, just for bringing that issue up, you have earned a spot on a future podcast <laughs> episode. Outstanding, uh, Frank. That, that will be a great topic uh, uh, to, to discuss on its own. Well, again, uh, Jeff Webster, Tara Snowden, Frank Burney, thank all of you for being here. This has been a special edition of Beyond the Bite with insight and analysis in the San Antonio municipal elections. Join us for our next episode, Profiling Cybersecurity Evangelist John Dixon. John shares where and how we remain vulnerable to network attacks. And as chairman of the Mayor's Airport Expansion Task Force, what the plans are for San Antonio's International Airport. Until then, thanks for listening.